Good morning, or good evening. It's been a wonderful day with you all. I uh, have really enjoyed uh, having some uh, lunch at uh, the Beckhams, and they were very hospitable, and appreciate them letting me spend some time in their home this afternoon. And I really enjoyed the service this morning. This congregation, as I mentioned this morning, its reputation precedes itself, and it's uh, a light on a hill. And I just pray that you never put it under a basket. This evening, I would like to talk about the topic of culture and the church. And I want to give you a few examples of, of a basic proposition that I strongly believe in. As a lawyer, I went to a law school. I was going to mention this uh, before I even began, because some of the songs that, uh, that, was, that were led tonight were um, reminiscent of the inner city congregation that I worshipped at when I attended Yale at New Haven uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. This little congregation was, uh, consisted of very poor individuals for the most part. Um, the congregation um, uh, was struggling in many ways economically, but spiritually they were very alive and very deeply committed to God's word. And I remember when my, my new bride and I arrived into Connecticut, trying to uh, find a congregation was a challenge. There wasn't one on every corner like there is in in Tennessee and Alabama and other states where we're so blessed by, uh, uh, by, a, by a, a number of, of strong congregations. And I felt um, compelled to at least investigate uh, the congregation that one of the professors at the Yale Divinity School who was affiliated with the church uh, was a member. Um, and so uh, we had several conversations, but ultimately I wasn't able to, uh, we weren't able to work with that congregation in part because of some of the things that I wanna talk about tonight. And it's kind of ironic because I had more in common with him uh, economically and, and uh, culturally uh, perhaps than the, than the brothers and sisters at 16 Jim Street. Yet ultimately our culture is not of this world. Our culture reflects God and his character and his will in all things. And if, uh, if we uh, don't get that right in terms of morality, in terms of church organization, in terms of our worship, and in terms of doctrine, then we're not going to be part of that light that glorifies God. Instead, we'll be part of the darkness. Now the challenge, of course, though, is to recognize that while we're in this world, there is a lot of confusion. There are a lot of people that don't know the truth. They don't understand or have the ability, it appears, to discern between all of the various choices out there. And our culture is very uh, highly charged with a kind of philosophy and a kind of approach and a way of thinking about things that's making matters worse, not better, for this next generation. And so it's more important than ever that when we speak about those things, when we speak about our faith, that we do so with clarity, that we do so based on an authoritative source that's objective, that's apart from you or my opinion. And, and the only way to, the only source that exists like that, one that we can find so much overwhelming evidence to, to support the fact that it's not just man's opinion, but that it must have been from God, is that Bible that you have in your lap. It's completely reasonable to believe that it is in fact the Word of God, that it is inspired, that it is in fact God-breathed, that it's perfect, and that it's able to thoroughly furnish you unto every good work. And if you have that as your guide, if you see that as your authority in all matters, 
as Colossians 3.17 asks us to do, then what you will learn in time is that people will be able to see a difference. A difference that this, this church can make in this community and in this world. And the question I ask you tonight is, does your faith matter? Does your faith make a difference? You know, there's a, a, a lot of cultural changes going around, uh, all swirling about us at, right now. And I believe, as a, as a lawyer, that law and culture shape our beliefs and that our beliefs ultimately determine our actions. And so it's very important that we recognize the influence that law has and that culture has on each and every one of us, on our on ourselves uh, individually, on our family, on our community, and on our country. But old, and let me give you a few examples of this to make the point. Uh, let me show you the first slide here. Um, <clears throat> there is perhaps uh, one of the biggest social issues of our day that reflects this fact that, that law teaches and shapes the public understanding is, for example, regarding marriage. The laws that are being passed in numerous states in this country and uh, that are being lobbied for at a national level, level are trying to redefine marriage. You know, it's a divine institution. It's one that God created. It's one that Jesus declared is between one man and one woman. And, and yet our society feels it has the liberty to redefine that. And the redefinition of marriage is, is something that I think will have an effect. It's going to have an effect on how uh, we interact with one another, but it'll also have an effect on the children. And that's one of the points I want to speak to, just as an example of how law and culture will shape uh, uh, the way you and I believe, and that'll ultimately affect our conduct. The first number up on the board, 2 colon 10 colon 23, the first number 2 represents the percentage of, of children that are in biologically intact homes. That means homes in which their biological mother and father reside and are still together. It represents the percentage of children in those biologically intact homes that still are victims of child abuse. And that's a terrible number. You think about uh, 2% of anything, it's, a big, it's not that significant. But if you think about when it's 2% of all of the homes in America that are resulting in child abuse, it's tragic and sad. And we wouldn't want one of those cases to occur. But if you allow your beliefs to be shaped by laws or by culture, it could change behavior. The next number, 10, is the percentage of children that are abused in homes where that definition of marriage between one man and one woman has been distorted just a little bit. It's single parent homes, specifically single mothers. Children in homes with just one parent, with just the mother, have a five-fold increase in the likelihood of being subjected to child abuse in this country. Now, there's a lot of reasons for it. We, you know, it might be helpful to have two protectors instead of one. It might be because she may, in fact, because she's single, be dating and strange men are coming into the home. But regardless of the reason, the ideal of God, of, uh, the ideal that God created for the family structure of, the, of a biologically intact family, of a mother and a father to care for the children, that ideal has statistically been proven 
to be superior to any alternative. The last number, 23%, is when the home is inhabited by two mothers, a same-sex marriage. When you engage in a perverted form of, uh, of marriage, what happens is the children suffer. Statistically, you go from just a 2% chance to a 23% chance that they'll be sexually abused. Now, these studies, which have been completed just in the last few years and are based on very wide samples, have been proven to be empirically sound. But I'm not trying to base my case on those kinds of, that kind of anecdotal, anecdotal evidence. I'm going to ask you tonight to ask, what is your faith leading you to do? And Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if God in his wisdom has revealed to you a plan, some instructions, his will for the structure of the family, for the organization of the church, for the doctrines that we uphold as a church, as the pillars of truth, or for our basic personal morality, who are we to second guess that? Who are we to say, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way? Or overall, it may be better and, and more conducive and more efficient or more uh, advantageous in some way for us to be a little looser in those particulars. I challenge you to ask yourself, do you have the kind of faith that is that discerning, that it's not willing to, to waver, but is willing to stand firm in the truth? Let me give you another example. The laws in this country have uh, recently challenged, take a look at the next slide, have challenged basic small business owners in this country who just have little bakeries, for example, like this gentleman. He was prosecuted under state law for refusing to bake a cake for a wedding. And you understand that, that if somebody just came in off the street, he didn't, you know, interrogate them and find out about their sexual orientation. He routinely ser served people uh, muffins and other things. But when somebody came in and said, I want you to set up a cake and I want you to celebrate our same-sex marriage. By, and, and I want you to put two uh, same-sex uh, uh, figurines on the top of that cake. He said no. And the state prosecuted him for it. Next slide. This young lady has a photography business. It's not a big business. It's a small business out west. And she was asked similarly. And again, she has routinely, day, after, day, day in and day out, uh, for example, taken senior portraits of everybody. And she didn't try to apply any kind of religious test or any kind of sexual orientation test. She didn't discriminate on anybody. She didn't discriminate against anybody on the basis of even sexual orientation in providing her camera uh, services. However, when they asked her to please come out and spend the day with them celebrating their same-sex marriage and help them capture in a, in a way that only she as an artist can that, that, the, the moment and the love and the, the between two individuals of the same sex, she declined and she was prosecuted and she lost. And both of these small businesses are merely the tip of the iceberg. And yet recently this year, the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert on their cases. They refused to overturn those decisions. The law and culture shapes beliefs, and beliefs will shape and affect actions. Next slide. You know, it reminds me of what went on in the 1940s. 
And while you and I probably have no religious objection to uh, uh, saluting the flag, some individuals did. And two Supreme Court cases came forward in the 1940s, and they were called the flag salute cases. And they involved children who, out of religious conviction, felt that they did not, uh, could not uh, salute or pay homage to a flag or any other icon or object or symbol other than God. And so they, on religious grounds, refused to do that, and schools were disciplining them. And the question came before the Supreme Court, can schools discipline them for refusing to salute the fat flag in the name of encouraging unity and nationalism and patriotism? Or does that violate the First Amendment, free speech and freedom of religion clauses? The first time the Supreme Court looked at that answer, they said, no, it's not a problem. They can discipline them all they want. And the second time in West Virginia versus Bernanette, the Supreme Court thought otherwise and allowed for a small exemption to be made on the basis of religious grounds, sincerely held religious beliefs for children who did not feel in all good conscience that they could do that act without violating their religious beliefs. The difference according to the court was, is I think the same basis on which they ought to be deciding these current cases. And that is, they realized that sometimes, it's one thing for a law saying don't discriminate, that's one thing. But for a law to force or compel a person to do something that goes against their beliefs, you with me? That goes against their sincerely held religious beliefs, that is a whole different matter. That, I think, is at the core of the First Amendment. It's the kind of freedom that we depend on as a religious minority in this country ourselves. And that freedom is under attack today. Have no doubts about that. It's already taken place in other countries like Canada and England where schools cannot be Christian schools. There's a Christian law school up in Canada right now that's under full attack to be unaccredited and stripped of all of its abilities to prepare lawyers to practice law simply because it has a Christian uh, mission. You know, that kind of, of ideology is part of the culture which we're being inundated with today. And it's a challenge as Christians to know how to integrate in this world and be at peace to the extent possible with all men. But I want to challenge you tonight to think about how your faith can make a difference, how faith matters, not just for yourself personally, but for your family, for this church, for your community, and for our nation. Thank you. Let me, um, let me begin <clears throat> by suggesting something. Um, let me give you one more example. Go ahead and throw this one up there. This is an example of sort of the latest laws that are out there. These are called the bathroom laws. If you haven't heard about them, you will. They're being passed in many municipalities across the country right now. And what they are is they're an attempt to require any public place to, to allow anyone to, to choose which bathroom they go in, the men's bathroom or the women's bathroom. Not based on their biological uh, uh, appropriateness for that, but based on their gender identity, which sex they identify with, not the one they were born with, which one do they want to be, or which one are they engaged in voluntary surgery to become. 
And that kind of uh, transvestitism is now being uh, promoted and, and protected uh, by local and state law. I think, I hope that these examples uh, sort of make you aware of the culture and how it's changing around us. And I want you to, um, I, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to pick on this one particular sin. It's just the sin de jure. It's just the sin that society is now progressing to accept. I'd love to roll the dial back and ask people that were, around, that were adults and in control of, of the voting booths in the 1950s why it is they passed, they, they, they elected uh, politicians who passed no-fault divorce rules. Because my concern about same-sex marriage is the same concern I've got about no-fault divorce. And the fact that we've got broken homes in this country, not because of any grounds like fornication that, that Matthew 19.9 recognizes as a legitimate grounds for, for divorcing a guilty spouse. But because of no-fault divorce, you can get a divorce for any reason or no reason at all. And that's sad. And I could roll the, I'd love to roll the, the uh, clock back and talk about the prohibition period and ask what happened to the evangelical awakening that led our country to not only prohibit drinking alcohol because they recognized that it, like gambling today, is big businesses exploiting the poor and the weak and the, and the addicted just for greed's sake only. What happened to the effort to, to not only pass a law prohibiting alcohol usage in this country, but actually passing a constitutional amendment? How did we get so far as a society that we were able to even repeal that constitutional amendment? You know, I, I could keep going, but I think you see my point. My point is that we're in a time now, and the issues that we face are the issues that society is trying to once again attack God's pattern, God's uh, guidelines. And the question is, are we once again going to cave? Are we once again going to be the silent majority? Or does your faith matter? Let's begin by um, talking about uh, a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This Paul is speaking to a, to a church that's in a culture that was in a culture that was just as, as aggressive and just as all-encompassing as ours. And yet they had come out of it. And he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Oh, they're born that way. They can't help it. No, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, the biggest challenge facing the church today is not the culture. It's the culture within the church. It's not the law. It's the laws of Christ. Whether or not you as a people are committed to being peculiar and distinct and standing firm in the laws of Christ and the teachings of Christ or not. That's the biggest challenge 
that we face. That the culture is from time immemorial, as these verses indicate, has always embraced sin. You can go back to every great civilization. You want to go to Babylon? You want to go to Greece? You want to go to Rome? All of them have embraced sin. Laws have always allowed sin. Just because it's legal, young people, doesn't make it right. We have gotten completely confused in this society that if a professor writes it up in a textbook and teaches it to you in a classroom, or if a legislature signs on to enough, to enough, and enough legislature sign on to a bill, that somehow what God calls wrong is somehow made right. And the reality is sin is still sin, whether you're willing to admit it or not. And the challenge for us as Christians who are trying to hold up the light, speak the truth in love, but speak the truth is that we cannot lose sight of what is the truth. And it's hard in a, in a world where they've got multi-million dollar marketing campaigns to try to sell us on uh, the fact that sex appeal is not only profitable, it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. And we'll allow our little preteens to wear those clothes and parade themselves around school. And we don't think anything of it because everybody else is doing it. It's easy for us to get lulled into thinking that, well, gambling is providing so much revenue for our state. That can't be that wrong. What's the big deal? People choose to do that. And yet we forget about all the other principles of Scripture, about what it really means to agape love our neighbors how we have an obligation, nay, a moral command to do what's in their best interest. And getting the poor and exploiting them and taking their money day in and day out in a slot machine is not agape loving them. We know that. Everybody knows that. And I don't care what that means for your school system if you're going to compromise on the first and the greatest command. You know, we can go on and on through the line, the list of sins. The question is not whether or not you are going to sin or I and whether I am perfect. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we died to ourselves if we became Christians. That's why we were buried in a water grave of baptism to wash those sins away. The question is not do we think we're better than them or more righteous or self-righteous. The question is simply, are we blind? Are we going to deceive ourselves into thinking that there was no sins to wash away in the first place? And whitewash our culture and pretend that everything's okay. You know, it's a hard thing to preach about. It's a harder thing to actually implement as a church. Let me give you three suggestions about things that we need to think about if our, church, our faith is going to make a difference in this culture. The first one is we need to reject the idea of universalism and ecumenicalism. Those are big words, but ideologies are the, are the recipe of the day. Our society has moved into a, 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 a framework of building a different worldview other than what you read about in Scripture. And one of those ideas is universalism. It's the idea that uh, I've heard uh, one public speaker that's fairly well known say, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not everyone's Savior. As if being Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu might be another way 
to eternal life. I heard another one, a very famous writer, a so-called Christian writer, not a member of the church, but he said, I'm happy for God to save anyone he wants in any way he can. It is possible for someone who does not know Jesus to be saved. I'm sure you've heard some friends or co-workers or, 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 or friends at school say something along the lines of, you know, God is so big and so powerful and so loving and so gracious that everyone's going to make it to heaven. That's universalism, folks. The problem with those ideas and those sentiments, as, as hopeful as they might appear, is that they run counter to the speaking of the Holy Spirit himself, our Lord himself. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, which, which said, we must speak the truth in love. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, singular, only one way. No one comes to the Father except by me. Acts 4, 12 says, there's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, for there is one God. And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We need to uniformly reject uh, universalism. And I said ecumenicalism. And this leads to my second point. We need to not only reject man's philosophies and learn to have a Christian biblical worldview, but we need to know our history. Because there's very few new ideas under the sun. And if you go back far enough, you can find a civilization that was destroyed, that failed, that lost its power and influence in part because of its rebellion against God and its sin. The same sins that we're now exalting and saying are special and we've got to protect and we've got to allow freedom and liberty to engage in. And if you can know your history, then I think we can keep from making the same mistakes. That's particularly interesting when it comes to the church. I use the term church now in a broad sense. And if you look at, 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 at Christianity in America over just the last century or two, if you go back to the 16th century, there were basically in Europe four divisions in Christianity, at least among the Protestants. There were Lutherans, there were the Reformed, there were Anabaptists, and there were Anglicans. And I know you know that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, singular. And I know that you understand that that church was established on the day of Pentecost. But I want you to understand what has happened in, in throughout time is that men have divided that church into numerous bodies. In the 16th century, there were four different Protestant divisions and then there were a few, many small, small organizations and structures as well. But by the 20th century, that number had grown to over 41,000 Christian denominations and organizations. In this country, in Canada alone, there are more than 1,500 Christian faith organizations. 1,500 from four to 1,500. What happened? We got away from God's pattern. We got away from what Ephesians teaches is that there's one God and one body. And that body's the church. That means there's one church. One faith. Not 1,500 different varieties. Take your choice. Tend the church of your choice. Now, we understand that, I think, intellectually. But what I want to warn you about is what's going on right now 
in this day and age, in the 21st century, the hallmark of, of American Christianity is ecumenicalism. And it stresses cooperation and merger and united action. It's encouraging cooperative activities, some of which may sound fairly innocent, like maybe we have a joint Easter Sunday service with several local denominations. Or maybe we engage in a benevolence project or two together and join forces. Maybe set up a council with leaders from the various churches. Issue a joint pronouncement on some important social or economic or political question. Have no doubt about it that they recognize there were irreconcilable differences among these 1,500 denominations, which were a problem from the get-go because that's not the biblical pattern of one church. But instead of going back to the one church, they had to find a way to make the 1,500 compatible with one another. And so they promoted ecumenicalism, not because they saw it in Scripture, but because they wanted to continue to rebel and grow in their rebellion against God. And they call it ecumenicalism. So what sounds so loving and, and, and gracious and merciful and kind and, and cooperative and uniting is in fact a, a dangerous heresy, a dangerous false doctrine and teaching that is designed to perpetuate and even grow the division of, of the Lord's church, to undermine Jesus' prayer that we be one as he is one with the Father. And it not only manifests itself with this call for cooperation and merger, but at the same time, it downplays differences in doctrine and morality and worship and an organization that was, folk, that was separating the churches. It advocates, they just focus on the essentials of the faith. Fellowship everyone who will accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's inevitable that that kind of philosophy requires you to compromise your faith instead of standing firm on the truth. It requires a liberal theology, a progressive approach to Scripture, rather than one that is simply trying to preserve what God has commanded. You know, I don't know how you approach the Scriptures. I don't know if you have a, a, a working hermeneutic is the word. In other words, a way to interpret Scripture. In a, in a predictable, reasonable manner, a way that, that reasonable people can, can be of one mind about what that scripture means. But you got to have it. It's not optional. There's no way that you can fight against this, this new trend in American Christianity if you yourself don't know how as a congregation or as a Bible class or as a youth group or as an eldership, how to be of one mind on matters of faith, on matters of doctrine and church organization and morality. Now, how do you do that? Well, there's a lot of, of scriptures that speak to this, but I want to suggest just uh, one approach, and that is that you understand that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. Don't give up that belief. As a lawyer, I, I, I've tried a lot of cases from San Juan to San Diego, and always I asked reasonable jurors to weigh the evidence and find by a preponderance of the evidence in a civil case or beyond all reasonable doubt in a criminal case that something was true. And they were able to listen to witnesses and, and read documents and, and, and analyze exhibits, and they were able to exercise that judgment to the point that they're willing to put somebody to death. So I know it's possible and that religious uh, uh, 
and, and the religious world is not the exception to that rule. I want to suggest to you that you don't check your brains at the door just because we're talking about faith now. That God has given you the ability and the tools to, to share in the knowledge that he's revealed by special revelation and to be able to partake of that and to accept it or reject it, to receive the word or not. And, and if that's true, then I think you need to be able to evangelize. You need to be able to teach other people and with the expectation that they too, if they humble themselves and are seeking to be are true truth seekers, be able to reasonably come to the same conclusions. And you can be united and of one mind, Christ's mind, on the matter. Now, is that too pie in the sky nowadays? Is that just so far beyond your comprehension of your postmodern mindsets? Or is it possible? I'm struggling with it at the law school. I've got 300 law students, only 10% of whom are Christians. And what I found is that they struggle with the very idea that text has meaning. That we can all read the first paragraph of the Constitution and agree on what it means, what it says, and what it doesn't say. They're struggling with the idea that a statute or that a set of rules can be enforced and understood by everyone subject to that rule. That it can be vague and ambiguous, but if you're God, you can perfectly draft it. The very idea is almost beyond their understanding. And so we spend a lot of time trying to prepare them. And one of the things that I've learned is that the very tools that the Supreme Court and jurists throughout the common law tradition for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the very tools that they've used to try to train jurists and, and, and lawyers to be able to understand and apply consistently with one another the law, the same tools that we've been preaching since the restoration movement began in this country over 200 years ago. Now, why is that? Because they both involve the same logic and same common sense. It goes like this. When I teach students in, in business associations, the corporate law course about agency law, I have to explain to them that you can know when somebody has authorization from their boss, from their principal, when the agent is actually authorized by their principal to do something. You can know that. Without any doubt, no one fights you over it. It determines whether or not the employer is liable for what the employee does, et cetera, et cetera, right? How? Well, they've authorized something if they expressly tell them to do it. If I'm the employer and I tell you expressly as my agent to go do something, then I'm authorizing it. So I'm going to be on the hook for whatever you do. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, Jesus, God, teach you what to do in the same way, by express command. But it doesn't stop there. I also have to teach the law students that they also have to understand that you have actual authority to do not only what's expressly commanded to do, but also you have actual authority to do whatever is necessary to carry out what's expressly commanded. And then there's a third category. There's some things that I'll do that's just incidental to me carrying out what is necessary to do what they commanded me to do. And those are the three categories that I teach second year law students to understand how, to have, how they know whether or not an agent has actual authority from a principal to do something. Apply those to a simple illustration. If I instructed you to go get some milk at the local store for me, have I given him express authority to do that? Yes. 
Everybody would see that. I've verbally told him to go do something for me. Go get some milk at the grocery store. Now, did I give him express authority to go buy eggs too? No. I said, go buy some milk. We can all understand language. It works well, doesn't it? It's amazing. But take it a step further. Where's the nearest store? Do you know? There's a dollar store got milk? Okay. How far away is it? Three quarters of a mile. You gonna hoof, hoof it? Are you? No. I'm not. Okay. What are you gonna do? What's he gonna do? Go get in a car. Now, is that reasonably necessary for him to carry out what I told him to do? Sure. Could he walk? Could he ride a bike? Could he ride it with somebody else in a car? Could he drive his own car? Sure. That's reasonably necessary to carry out the command. I have actually authorized, and most uh, jurists would agree, that actual authority exists for him to, one, buy milk, not anything else, buy milk at a local store, and drive to get there. So I'm on the hook when he buys the milk, and I'm on the hook if something happens when he's driving there. Everybody see that? Makes sense, because he had actual authority. Take it one step further. When you get in that car and you're driving that three quarters of a mile, what do you typically do other than drive? Oh, listen to a tape. Listen to a book on tape. He's turned on the radio. I didn't tell you to turn on the radio. Now, the question is, does it change substantively or procedurally what I asked him to do, what I commanded him to do? Is it just incidental or is it substantive in change? Most of us say it's incidental, right? It's not, a fa- it's not, it's not replacing the category of milk with coca, cola. It's not adding to the milk eggs and bacon. Or taking away the milk and bringing me nothing more than the carton. Right? It's not a substantive change. It's incidental. He has actual authority to do all three things. To go buy the milk. To go drive the car to buy the milk. And to even turn on the radio while he's on the way. You see it? That's what I teach law students. You can apply that, can't you, to simple scriptural commands as well. Think about your command to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord specifically commanded what? That you partake of unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. You don't add little white chocolate crosses to that meal, do you? You don't take away the bread and just do the fruit of the vine some Sundays, do you? You do what you're expressly authorized to do, no more and no less. But, you know, one of the challenges uh, uh, is to understand what is necessary to carry that out. Is it necessary uh, for you to um, uh, uh, have the little cups that carry the the fruit of the vine? So maybe we don't have authority for the little Dixie cups. They certainly didn't have them 2,000 years ago, did they? And the answer is, it may not be necessary, although some kind of container is necessary, unless we're going to squirt the juice straight from the grapes into each of our mouths, right? So some kind of container is necessary, but the particular container is incidental. It doesn't change the very nature of the, of the ceremony, does it? Whether it's one cup or many plastic cups. So you see how I'm applying that. Another example. You, you, you learn not just from specific commands, but from examples. Or what the law we call precedence. What other people have done, and it's been approved by some proper authority. Well, what's the... What's that? That would be divinely approved examples in Scripture. When do we partake of the Lord's Supper? On the first day of every week. Why? 
Because that's a necessary inference. That's a necessary interpretation of Acts 20 verse 7. Where it says they came together on the first day of every week to break bread. And that's divinely approved by God. And so that's what they did. That's what we should do. It's a necessary inference. So here we are talking restoration movement, classic pattern theology, command, example, and necessary inference. And there may be some matters of expediency, matters of opinion, matters that are just incidental. Sound familiar? That's not your denominational dogma, folks. That is common sense that has preserved the ability for an authority to expect and, and get his authoritative uh, instructions carried out by his or her agents for millennia. It's the way authority works. There is no other way around it. And so that's what our common law tradition that goes back centuries has advocated and yet for us to try to bring that kind of common sense and logic into our religious world is somehow being denominational and legalistic and so and narrow minded. How is it that we have been unable to see the fact that we have one of the most powerful tools, our hermeneutic, to unite the Christian world the world has ever seen? They have lost the ability to practice simple New Testament Christianity because they're unwilling to subject it to the same basic common sense tests that we, we use in every other area of life. I challenge you. I challenge you to boldly proclaim the gospel, your faith that's grounded in the authority of Scripture. And don't back down. Because the reason why they're going to reject it is not because it doesn't make sense, but it's because they're rejecting God and His authority. Let me close by saying to you one last thing. And that is that when Jesus was speaking in John chapter 10, 10, He made it clear that He came to give us life and life more abundantly. Not just eternal life in heaven one day, but I believe in this life, he wants us to know God's will and be able to share that knowledge with one another and be united around that of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit, so that we can have the kind of passion that the world can't ignore and will be drawn to hear why we're so different. What is it the hope that's within you is all about? This evening, if you haven't yet experienced that kind of knowledge of God, and you would love to study more, please let us know. We would love to sit down with you and study more. But if you know, you know the gospel, and you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you're willing to repent of your sins, and you're willing to publicly confess His name before men, and you're willing to put Him, in, put him on in a watery grave of baptism, to be immersed for the remission of your sins, and to be raised a new creature, we encourage you to do so as we stand and sing.